One of the greatest memories I have of my time in Ozona, Texas was the time I took several of my government students to the county courthouse for the opportunity to have a Q&A session with our congressman, at the time, Kiko Canseco. It was on that day that I got to see the passion and love for America that Ben English possessed. He held the congressman accountable, pointed out areas where he had failed us or gone back on his previous words, and he did so in a manner that demonstrated the love he has for America and the very serious set of beliefs he has in terms of preserving this amazing country. Please excuse the time or two that we had a small technical disruption here or there as I did my best to patch it up and enjoy the interview. One other small note uh, would be the macaw parrot you'll hear from time to time in the background. My cousins, Jana and Steven, uh, their bird, Lola, can sometimes get going and it sounds a lot like, <laughs> so without further ado, let's go into the home of Ben English. If you find yourself enjoying this episode of the Tail Lights Podcast, please take the opportunity to rate us five stars and write a review if you can. Thanks for tuning in to the Tail Lights Podcast. I'm Eric Thormalen, and today I'm joined by, uh, well, it's difficult to describe this one, but um, a longtime state trooper, uh, former Texas public educator, and published author, and former United States Marine, Ben H. English. Mr. English, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Eric. How about yourself? A simple Ben will do. Okay. Yes, sir. I'll, I'll go with uh, go with Ben from here on. Uh, ben, did I describe everything pretty well there, or did I leave anything out? Well, you hit the high points. Okay. I've, I've, I've been accused of cramming a half a dozen lives into one. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, I think you're living the right way there. Uh, how's everything going out west? Well, with this coronavirus scare, it's just a little crazy. Uh, we've uh, had the entire county uh, shut down, basically. Then we had one of the hotel owners over Marathon uh, sue the county for it. So it would prove to be interesting, if anything else. Wow. Well, Ben, the, of course, the reason we're here today is to talk about your life and everything. And if, if you don't mind telling our uh, listeners a little bit about how, you know, where you grew up and what your parents did. All right. Well, I grew up more or less in Lahitas, Texas. That's, that's kind of a general statement because uh, my grandparents ran the Lahitas Trading Post most of the years that I was growing up. Um, I went to school, started school in Presidio, then Marfa, and then to Terlingua, where I went to a one-room schoolhouse for uh, six grades and nine students. Um, our ranching headquarters for our operations and candelito wax and such was there at Lejitas Trading Post. My mom and my dad ended up buying a ranch, just called the Free Bar now. At that time, it was known as the Fulcher Place. It was about five miles south of Hennig Mountain on Terlingua Creek. And uh, that's where I spent most of my years until I was about, oh, 13. And we moved to Fort Stockton because, again, uh, there was only six grades of school there in Terlingua. And the cattle market was like playing Rush Roulette with five loaded chambers. <laughs> yeah. And the Candelier Wax business had gone away, too. Yeah. Wow. But we stayed uh, ranching from long distance and trying to run operations until I was about 14 or so, and we finally just sold completely out. 
Gotcha. And and so you end up going to uh, high school then there in Fort Stockton? Yes, I graduated high school there in Fort Stockton. What kind of trouble did you get into when you were young? <laughs> <laughs> Mostly trouble. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh... Uh, I, uh, well, we were living in the Big Bend, uh, basically cowboy. By the time I was 10 years old, my dad and my granddad expected me to do a full day's work in a saddle. And uh, that started when I was about five, learning how, 10. I expected to do the same work anybody else did. Uh, so most everything I learned in my most formative years was having to do ranching, cowboying, and the land itself, and with no television or radio or even electricity or outdoor plumbing or indoor plumbing at that time uh, in some places. Uh, I learned a lot of the land from stories and from other people. Uh, but after I went to Fort Stockton, uh, we had some hard times and by the time I graduated high school, I worked as a groundskeeper, a dishwasher, uh, selling grit magazine, an engine supply, worked as a stalker and a, and a bag boy at a Safeway, uh, worked at a salt plant. By the time I was 16, I'd driven dump truck and front end loader and uh, maintainer and uh, most anything else had wheels and a way to steer. Uh, but as soon as I graduated high school, I didn't even go to my graduation ceremony. I had the principal go into the safe and get me uh, my diploma. I'd already gone to the Marine Corps to lead this program and uh, went straight to the Marines about two weeks later. Uh, all five foot six and 116 pounds of me, 17 <laughs> years old. Wow. Headed headed out to San Diego, huh? Yes, sir. Went to San Diego Marine Corps Recruit Depot there. A lot, lot. Was uh, a whiskey locker at Latford. Lot, rat for the platoon. Mm -hmm. A lot better beaches out in San Diego than in Fort Stockton, huh? Well, I didn't pay a lot of attention because when we were hitting the beach, that's exactly what we were doing. We were <laughs> training to hit the beach. Yeah. yeah. I heard one of an old gunnery sergeant say one time, you see one beach, you see them all. <laughs> what uh, what year was that when you got out there to, um, to San Diego? 1976. Okay, gotcha. Nice. So how long do you uh, stay there, you know, past boot camp? You got 12 weeks. I went to boot camp in San Diego. And then I went to infantry training school at Camp Pendleton, which is in Southern California. Well, at Camp Pendleton, I was selected for Marine Security Guard at infantry training school. And from when I graduated infantry training school, I went to uh, Hawthorne, Nevada, of all places, out in the middle of the desert, world's largest ammunition depot. It was a naval base at that time, and they used Marine Security Guards to guard the base. I was there about 10 months and they shut it down and turned into an army ammunition plant. So they took everything and uh, went army with it. And so then I went to Okinawa with uh, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines. Nice. Was that your first time out of the country? Yeah, it was my first time out of the country, except for crossing the river every now and then around Lajitas. <laughs> what did you think of uh, Okinawa? Well, at that time, the Americans still had a, um, well, basically, we still claimed the island. 
the Japanese took over during the time that I was there. As I said, I went there 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, and uh, as a mortarman working 60 mine mics. And uh, I shot the battalion high with the rifle. And they were just starting a scout sniper ballot again. They had let that go away in the end of Vietnam. And I basically was in the first school for Marine scout snipers since Vietnam. Wow. Uh, but I ended up being a scout sniper uh, and also a jungle warfare instructor in Northern Training Area there in Okinawa until I shipped back stateside. So how long, how many months did you say you stayed there? Ten? It was a year. Okay, gotcha. A full year. Okay. And so then you come back to the U.S. and, and uh, how long before uh, um, you're on to your next adventure here? Well, um, I went straight to uh, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. And I remember checking in at the S1, the admin there. And he looked at my SRB, my service record book. They didn't even know what a scout sniper was. They were fixing to put me in a, a line outfit again. And I said, look, I said, I just got through this scout sniper school. And at that time, evidently, I was the only scout sniper in 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. Wow. And so they sent me to Stapleton, which was where I was supposed to go. The stay stood for surveillance and target acquisition. Uh, you had one section, supposed to be scout snipers, just starting out. You had one section for night observation devices and one section for ground sensors and ground radar. Long story short, they sent me to another scout sniper school. And for 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, they ended up being chief scout sniper and uh, platoon sergeant. I still corporal, I was holding a gunnery sergeant's uh, billet. And I was thinking, I think it was about 20 years old when that happened. And we ended up being called one of the uh, most combat ready units in the 2nd Marine Division. Wow, okay. Being the only uh, scout sniper in the whole 2nd uh, uh, Battalion Marines, that's pretty crazy, huh? What, um, you said they had stopped doing that training uh, shortly after Vietnam, was that correct? Right after, when Vietnam ended, they stopped it. Mm -hmm. There was a, from what I was told, there was a lot of this uh, talk about these uh, kill crazy Marines come out of the Corps and you don't know what they're going to do and such like that. It was kind of a political move more than anything else. But then they decided, hey, we really need these guys. And uh, you had to go through psychological testing and then the marksmanship part of it and then field crafts and, and all kinds of skills. Uh, the washout rate was about 50%, and the men that went into it to begin with were hand-picked. Mm. Wow. And in fact, I was top man for my first school. But uh, we got the scout sniper section going there with the battalion, second Marines. Got some good Marines in. It was pretty nice because, like I said, I was only a corporal, and I was barely turned 20, and I was full of vinegar. And uh, so I ran things my way. And uh, the smartest lieutenant I ever had, when a scout sniper, uh, the state platoon, you work for the battalion intelligence officer. And I got a new officer by the name of Delegi came in. And he was a second lieutenant straight out of, I guess, TBS, basic school for Marine Corps Infantry. And uh, he called me in the first day. He said, uh, uh, Corporal English, he said, uh, uh, I don't know squat about Stapleton. It was honest. 
He goes, but everybody says that you do. So I'm going to observe you for about 90 days and, and learn how this works. And if you need my horsepower or my bars, you let me know. Otherwise, you just run things the way you see fit. And uh, I always thought that was the smartest second lieutenant in the entire United States Marine Corps because he actually knew that he did not know things and that he needed to learn. And in fact, uh, when it was all said and done with, he went to Marine Counterintelligence and then ended up recruiting me to Marine Counterintelligence in my second hitch. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of value in getting a, a you know, put under somebody that, that is willing to admit that they don't know, you know, what they're doing and, you know, hey, can I learn from you and allowing you to do your job and supporting you at doing your job. Well, that's kind of like what I told my sons and they both went to Annapolis. One went Marines, one went Navy. I told the one who went to Marines, I said, you just remember that there's Marine gun resources out there that have been doing your job for decades. Learn from them. And I uh, told the same thing to my younger son, Ethan, who went to the Navy. I said, those chief petty officers said, those are the ones that run the Navy. You get on their good side, you learn from them. And both of them followed my advice and both of them were, by, were highly valued by their enlisted men and respected hmm. uh, because they were smart enough to realize they didn't know everything. Right, yeah, that's good advice. Um, for for uh, anyone listening to this that's involved in the military and stuff, that's good advice uh, for them as well. So, um, so what's next for you? Well, I got out of the Marines, and uh, that was June of '83. I, at that time, I had been to over 30 countries and four different continents, mostly Central America, South America, Caribbean, West Africa. Middle East and Southeast Asia. Um, they offered me just about anything that I wanted. They said, we'll send you to intelligence school, uh, become an instructor yourself at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. We'll make you an officer, send you to college, whatever you want. And I said, no, it's been real, it's been fun, but I know there's gotta be more than, than this. And, uh, you know, that time the Marine Corps had a different attitude. If you wanted to settle down or something, their attitude was that we, wanted you to have a wife and family, we would have issued you one. And <laughs> of course that's all changed now, but like when I was running my platoon, I think I only had one man in the entire outfit out of 40 some odd men that was married. Now about half of them are changing the times. Anyway, uh, in fact, I had, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I had conducted the first real world counterintelligence operation in the Marine Corps sent to Vietnam. And uh, they really wanted to keep me. Uh, I was honored. I was humbled. I stay in contact with still those guys. Of course, they're all retired now, too. Mm -hmm. But uh, it got to the point they thought I was mad about something. I wasn't mad at all. It was time to move on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I went, I went uh, out of the, I got out of the car, core. Uh, pulled a pin and like I said June of 83 and uh, late August early September of 83 I'm a freshman at college at Angel State University assembling bicycles for uh, J.C. Penney uh, which was a different way of doing things uh, kind of different what I had been doing 
And then in October of 83, uh, the Marine barracks in Beirut was bombed by Hezbollah operatives. Um, the man who took my place over there was killed. So all my friends were killed, and I lost about half the two that I trained back when I was still a grunt. Oh, wow. And yeah, there is such a thing called survivor's guilt. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, I graduated ASU, which uh, I uh, magna cum laude, uh, who's who in American universities and colleges and Alpha Chi and Alpha Lambda Delta and all this other good stuff. Uh, 86 was the busiest year. I was married in March of 86. Graduated from college in May 86, went to the DPS All Recruit School Academy at Austin in June of 86, and was stationed in Ozona, Texas as a rookie high patrolman in November of 86. Wow. What was 1986 Ozona, Texas like? Huh. <laughs> well, it had its good points and it had its bad points. Yeah. Uh, there have been a lot of young people killed in car wrecks around here before I got there. And I heard from my captain, who was a new captain, I heard from a, a new sergeant, who was a new sergeant, said that uh, this is unacceptable. Uh, we want you to work hard at stopping this. And uh, I remember I would get three and four, sometimes three or four DWIs a night. Uh, I would make a, over 100 MIPs a month and about half that number of uh, making availables. Uh, also at that time, as you well know, there was no PD in Ozona, so I was handling a lot of the local calls. The sheriff's deputy didn't have any backup. Uh, and also at that time, that 70-something mile stretch of I-10 through Crockett County was the fifth deadliest stretch of interstate in the nation for miles traveled. And you were only about 50 miles, 60 miles of crow flies from Mexico, so I stayed gainfully employed. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Wow, that's that's pretty crazy. Four DWIs a day or a night? That, that, that was unusual. You know, this wasn't something you did every night. You got called out a lot of night when I started out. But I can remember having three drunks in the car with me at once, all handcuffed, that I had gotten and I start it was on New Year's Eve I'd start towards the, high, uh, the office and I come across another one uh, but I had three in the car with me and we got downtown there to square uh, at the red light and a guy in a Z28 Camaro busted the red light and nearly went sideways went into the side of the patrol car and I spun it around and went after him and all the guys that I'd already arrested go get him Mr. Angus he's drunk he's drunk <laughs> so I get him shut down over by the little shopping center and uh, uh, arrested him, had to call another unit to come pick him up, one of the sheriff's office units. And all the other drunks were saying uh, that they'd be witnesses as far as what he did, nearly collided the car and hit and, you know, injured us all, at least injured us all, but just happened to miss us. Anyway, they said they'd be witnesses. So all the other drunks went down and reported as witnesses. <laughs> wow <laughs> what uh what other good stories can you tell us maybe uh, one thing i'd like to know you know for anybody that's listening to this that's uh involved in a career in law enforcement you know uh or going back and you know between one and the other education and law enforcement would be 
what are some uh, some of the most challenging things when you first get into that field as that you faced? I mean, obviously you just described some of them that are happening there in Ozona, but what are what are some things that man, if you'd known that one earlier, you could have helped here, or if you would have been better at this earlier, you could have done you know something more exceptional there, right? Well, I think a good background in a lot of different things always help. Most good officers are uh, they're jack of all trades. They're master of none, but they're jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. Um, I was blessed and respected. I was used as an instructor in several different billets. I taught defensive driving. I taught patrol procedures. I taught uh, officer survival. I taught firearms. I taught baton. Uh, I was on the pistol team. I was on the honor guard. Uh, on all these different things, they help you become another, a better officer. Um, I think common sense has a lot to do with it and a good heart. If you got common sense and a good heart, you can't go too far from wrong. Yeah, one of the best um, compliments I ever got was from a record driver. He told me one time, in fact, his name was Glenn Burns. You might have known him. Um, Glenn told uh, one of my sergeants one time, the sergeant come and told me, he said, if Ben English makes a mistake, he made a mistake trying to do the right thing. And that was just about as good as a compliment as I could ever expect. Yeah, absolutely. If you notice me get up and down at all during this whole interview, I, sometimes I let my dog out of the room. And then she understand. she mills back in and goes back to sleep or whatever. She doesn't do a whole lot anymore, but uh, she she does sometimes come and knock on the door. So I apologize for that. No apology necessary. Yeah. Well, that that's uh, that's a good compliment to get there. I and I do remember having to use the record once, but I don't remember if I ever met Glenn Burns or not. But so, that name sounds very familiar. So. Um, there, there in Ozona, uh, you guys are gonna, you and Kathy are gonna have kids, and you're gonna have them in school there, and and everything, and and you're gonna be working as a DPS trooper right there. Was, uh, you know, how does um, what's maybe some good advice you have? You know, sometimes being a coach's kid, it's a two-way deal. It it can be, uh, it can be tough for the kid, but it can also kind of work in the favor of the kid because you have access sometimes to being able to go over film with dad at home or something or being able to get into the weight room at times when other kids couldn't obviously that's a little bit different being a dps trooper but what was some of the good and the bad you feel like for your kids being students there having their dad being you know the 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 badge walking around out there well they had to make their own way uh i uh One Christmas, right around Christmas time, my brother, who was a deputy sheriff there in Ozona, had to shoot a local and kill him. And there was a great deal of hate and discontent that came out of that. So much so that my brother and my sister-in-law pulled their two sons out of school and went to um, the Lubbock area, put them up school, put them school up there. Mm -hmm. Uh, After the Christmas holidays were with. Levi, I think, was in the first grade, and uh, we had us a talk. I said, uh, my son, I said, there's going to be some people approaching you uh, about what happened. You tell them that involved your uncle, you don't know anything about it. I said, now, if they persist in the matter, uh, 
you pick out the biggest one out of the bunch because they'll come at you in a, as a bunch. Yeah. And you just beat the pincushions out of him. <laughs> and uh, about 10 o'clock in the morning, the first day of school, phone rang. <laughs> he done exactly what I told him to do. You know, Levi was probably the wrong guy to tell because he always liked to fight. But after he did that, things kind of settled down. Um, when a man is an officer, a peace officer, I don't like the term law enforcement officer. I prefer peace officer. In a small town, you live in a fishbowl. And you have to be harder on your own than anybody else. Uh, another interesting thing about that, I never forget my older nephew, Logan. Uh, he ended up, in fact, he's getting ready to retire in the Air Force here a couple more years. He jumped master for the Air Force, done this, that, something else. He's got a real salad bar in his chest when he puts on his uniform. Hmm. I don't know how many times he's been to Afghanistan and Iraq. Anyway, uh, you were asking what it was like. And uh, he came out one time, he was helping my brother with record duty. And I asked him, so Logan, how's it going? He's just out of high school, ready to go to the Air Force. He goes, Uncle Benny, because I can't get away with anything around here. He goes, you're a corporal in the Marine Corps, a uh, corporal in the Highway Patrol. My other uncle is a trooper in the Highway Patrol. My dad is uh, a deputy sheriff, and uh, my mom is a district attorney. And I kind of just smiled and said, yeah, that's what we all had figured. That's what we wanted it around here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's it, when a man takes on, a, uh, again, I can say you're living in a fishbowl wearing that badge. It's not just you that it involves. It involves your family. Right. And like you said, uh, all the other kids are looking exactly at how your sons or your nephews or something is treated because they're going to be the first ones to point out there's some hypocrisy going on there. And they should be. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, again, you got to be a little harder on your own than anybody else. Right. Yeah, um... And and you're you're more than welcome to tell any uh, of the other law enforcement stories that you want to out in Ozona. No pressure to do so or or anything. But sometimes, if uh, you know, this is of course not the area where uh, my guests usually are involved, and so I may not be the best questioner when it comes to that career path. If that makes sense, you know, I think I'll probably ask a lot better questions and be able to sync more with you here when we get to the education part of it. Um, but you're welcome to tell any other stories that you'd like to or elaborate as much as you'd like to. Um, but I will say, uh, since Levi has come up and everything already, you know, for our, our usual listeners that know about the state championship that we won out in Ozona, uh, that I was the coach of in cross country, a lot of that would not have been possible without, um, I feel like, the the foundation that was set by Levi's group, who the very first day of practice, I took the four kids that showed up, ran them down to the Davidson, had them take a, a knee in there in the gym and look up at that picture and say, I want you to see yourself in a picture like this. And it wasn't uh, too long after that as well, uh, Kathy offered me to have Levi come and visit with the kids, which I thought was a great benefit too. It really helped uh, help them realize that, hey, we may live in Ozona and there might not be a whole lot of great things that happen here and everything, but great things have happened here. And, and we're able to make more great things happen here. And it, it, it really helped. I mean, that's the only way you can do something like that in the short 
you know, frame of time that we did it in. And so uh, I can really speak to the quality uh, and character of both of your boys as well in the uh, limited um, settings that I had with both of them. They're, the, you guys raised two really good kids, so. Well, Kathy did the lion's share of a lot of that because one of the other things I was also tasked with, not only my own duties, but I was on the district civil disturbance management team, which means I was headed out the door by half the time putting on gun and ammo and, and a hat, and I'm going to be gone for two, one or two weeks before I saw him again. And uh, she ran, she held down the fort, she ran the, the whole deal until I got back. Uh, you know, I was talking about how uh, the family, mm -hmm. how it affects the family. The first dead man my wife ever saw was my field training officer uh, laying face down on the pavement about six miles west of Ozono after a 18-wheeler hit him from the rear. Wow. She and uh, my sister-in-law were headed to uh, Frontier Days here at Fort Lancaster. Uh, and they rolled up just as the dust was still settling right after the truck had hit. And, uh, of course, I wasn't, I wasn't around again at that time. That was 1990. I was in that afternoon, that Saturday afternoon, I was in uh, Austin providing security for the first President Bush so he could do the commencement speech there at the University of Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, all I knew is that I heard that uh, Willie Dale Taylor had been killed and it wasn't done very well. And so I started looking for a payphone, call home, managed to be able to visit with her because yes, I saw it. And uh, I remember we were through at 10.30 that night. They said, well, y'all had a long day, I don't want anybody going home. And I told them, I didn't say a word. I just got in that black and white, but nobody was looking and headed towards it was on her. I think I made it about two and a half hours. Jeez. And uh, we spent till dawn the next morning trying to talk it out. That's the sort of things that happen. Uh, yeah. The kid, the, the, it's, it's, a, it's a team effort. It's a team effort. And there's one thing I can erase my wife's memory would be that, that memory uh, of seeing that. Yeah. Hmm. And I would also say that she went back, uh, went to the office reported to them what had happened because they were trying to raise him on the radio and couldn't get a response. And then she went to his wife's place and sat with her. Wow. And as I was told by other uh, long-term employees, the DPS that were there that day, they said, your wife is a real trooper. But uh, no, I did it for 22 years, retired from it when I was 50. I was my 50th birthday present to myself. My wife saw all of that too. She handled our money very, very well. And uh, I came in one day griping about something. She said, you don't, you don't need this job. Everything we have is bought and paid for. And so I retired at 50. And of course the deal was, she told me, she said, you can retire at 50. Don't you ever, ever put on another gun and badge. I've done my time. Mm -hmm. um, and I was ready. You know, uh, uh, I had about a year before I retired, I worked a pretty bad wreck there east of Ozona, Interstate 10, killed three small children. 
one of those kind of wrecks that I had two EMTs just kind of zone out on me. One of them quit, but it was so bad. And uh, I handled it like I always did the other ones, but I knew I was done. I didn't want to do that job no more. And uh, he just came out real good. I was able to retire after that. I don't think he can retire at 50 anymore. <laughs> I think they changed that around. Yeah. Wow. You know, a, a lot of these types of stories are the ones that never get told on the news media and everything. Uh, of course, you're you're aware of that as well. And so that's that's a lot of the value involved with, with what you are saying here for a lot of our listeners that don't always fully appreciate the the duty and responsibilities and horrors that come along with that job um you know and it's a good way to for some of them to be able to think about it because again that stuff doesn't get reported to that extent you know i don't like really talk about myself much about what i was doing because there were so many others that did a better job uh there were some that put everything they ever had into it and they weren't able to retire for one reason or another. Uh, I'm looking at writing a book now and I've been, oh, I guess the world would be encouraged by many to do so. Most everybody that are, that's retired now like I am, with all that's going on in society now, is, you know, you need to write our story. Uh, well, you have the abilities, you have the gift to do it with words to do so. And everything we see happening now, that's not us. What you see on TV, what you see in the movies, that ain't us. They're right. But and I'm going to write that book. In fact, I've already got a title for it. It's Black and White, Real Stories of Texas Highway Patrol. And uh, But it's not going to be about me. It's going to be about those guys that did not make it for one reason or other. And uh, it's going to be tough. It's not one of those things I want to do, but it will be something that I have to do. I mean... I understand what you mean about it being one of those things you feel like you have to do but don't want to do. I, I get that, but I, I highly doubt I'll ever fully understand just how emotionally uh, withdrawing or you know whatever the uh, extracting that that process will be for you. But I commend you for being willing to to eventually sit down and do that. Well, I've had some people make contact with me. They're involved with the PTSD. Uh, uh, with law enforcement, first responders, that sort of thing. And uh, they asked, well, how do you do it? You know, you, 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 you uh, move from being a DPS trooper to a school teacher to a writer, and it never seems like you even broke stride or something. And, uh, you know, more or less, that will help other people. Right. Uh, when, when they have problems. Yeah. And I said, you, it's just like you compartmentalize. It's like you got all these mason jars, and you take all this stuff, and you put it in that mason jar, and you cap it, you go bury it in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And you just keep burning them. And uh, that's the way you get through. That's the way you compartmentalize. Now, when I write this book, I have to dig all those jars back up and open them up again. Uh, but um, there is such a thing. You know, I, I can recall getting out uh, VCR tapes that, you know, I went straight from being retired to DPS to being on uh, a school teacher yeah. at a school level. Uh, Abe Gott and Mr. Webb saw all that. They came to me before I even retired and said, hey, how would you like to teach school and you know, start your own criminal justice system uh, school, uh, courses there? Sound like a great deal. And uh, 
So Thursday, I was wearing my uniform. I pulled it off for the last time. And on Monday, I was standing up in front of the class with coat and tie on. I was going to ask how long the transition was, but of course, you got ahead of me on that, um, like four days. Okay. <laughs> well, the reason I brought it up is because I did that for two years, and it was probably, in many ways, the most satisfying job I ever had. And I had some very important, satisfying jobs, but I really enjoyed that. And there, it definitely wasn't for the money, but the ability to work with these young people and not be involved with that gun and that badge anymore. Yeah. Um, but after I, after two years of that, uh, and then I walk away from that, and I'm sitting there, and I start watching these old videos of my old pursuits and the stuff I went through during these riots and uh, during hurricanes and stuff like that. I remember watching, had a 2002 Camaro LS1 pursuit unit. That thing would outrun a telegram. <laughs> and... Uh, and I drove it wide open place I went, and it run to 163 miles an hour top end. And when you got a bad wreck call, you need to go someplace. I use all those 163 miles an hour. Yeah. And uh, I started looking at those videotapes, and that sense trap just popping by, just blink, 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 blink. And you're passing cars, and you realize the speed limit at that time was 75, and you're running 85 miles an hour faster than what they are at the time, like running past somebody 85 miles an hour. And uh, I never gave it a second thought. I always maintained my vehicles. I was a fanatic about that, checking the tires and looking at them and checking the air pressure time before I went on duty. Uh, but now looking at that videotape, just that, I'm saying, man, that's fast. That's real fast. That's too darn fast. Hmm. But you never thought about it at the time. It's just another day at the office. Right. What was it like when you slowed down the vehicle a little bit and, and went in the classroom? You said it was very rewarding, but um, what kind of, uh, you know, what were your impressions of public education and, and how long did you stay in and, you know, you know, some of those types of questions? Well, first of all, the cars. There are people that accuse me of joining the Howard Patrol only for the reason to give me a reason to uh, drive fast legally. They knew me back in high school and such. And I won't answer that, uh, but I always had to sing about old cars, old fast cars. You know, you get on my Facebook page and stuff, and you'll see some of the examples of that. Anyway, those old cars acted as a uh, as a conduit with those young people, uh, just like it did my own sons. You know, they grew up digging cars and working on their old cars and shooting and things like that. That I always had an interest in. And when all else fails, those shared hobbies and shared interests act as communication lines when everything else is down. Right. Same thing with those young people. Yeah. That and the, the, the fact that they've never been shown a lot of things that I, that I actually took for granted because that's the way I was raised and the way my sons were raised. You know, I remember they're uh, standing up in front of the classroom and explaining what the class was about. And I started using words like duty and honor and integrity, and I'm getting an RCA dog look. And it's not because they're turning me off. It's basically they don't know what I'm talking about. So we started with all that. And uh, like I said, I enjoyed that probably more than anything else. I remember when, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the coach's name. I got his face in front of my, in my head. He was the principal the second year I was there. Uh, Benny Granger? 
Yes, sir. Now, I feel bad about missing him, Benny's. Name, and if you're listening to this, don't beat me up next time you see me, all right? (laughs) I know how you can get a big old boy like you. But uh, Mr. Granger told me, uh, we were talking about it, and I said, send me your problem, kids. And he goes, Ben, I don't want to do that to you. You don't need nothing, but, you know, you don't need all problem kids. I said, yeah, I do, because I was one myself. I was on the bubble myself. I know how to talk to them. And uh, he was a great boss to work for because he just pretty much let me do what I thought I needed to do. And uh, I was sure sorry to see him go. Yeah, everybody that I talked to out there raved about what a great principal he was there. And, and uh, I, was, I was sorry that I didn't get the opportunity to work for him based on a lot of their descriptions. He was, a, he was just a good guy to be around. I could go in there and visit with him. Uh, and uh, he really cared a whole lot about those kids, which made him pretty good in my book. Yeah, I mean, he was one of those guys that did everything he possibly could. He'd go the whole nine yards for any kid. Yeah. But uh, we started out, and uh, I remember talking to counselor. I don't remember her name right now either, but she asked what I had in mind, and I said, well, first of all, I said, if you have to be able to communicate. I said, in the 21st century courtroom, the American courtroom, it doesn't matter if you have the best case in the world. You have to be able to articulate that in written form. Because if you can't write a decent report, it never happened. Yeah. Uh, we talked about the idea of um, uh, the lack of common sense, the lack, and I saw this in recruits coming to school. You know, a lot of these kids who were coming to recruit school in the DPS when I retired, they'd never been over 90 miles an hour before. They'd never been hit or hit back, and they didn't know what chin of the gun the bullet came out of. Now, you know, you had people who just graduated college, they never even held down a real job. Mom and dad supplied everything. Right. And you're supposed to take this young woman or this young man and in 18 weeks make him to a state trooper supposed to be able to go heel to toe with some kid that's been a street punk since he was 10 years old living on the streets it doesn't usually work out very well that way well anyway i told her i said we need uh, we need common sense that comes from job experience and they've got to know why they're there they've got to know why they're wearing that badge that when you put on that badge you're not just Joe Smokatello back on the block anymore. You're representing 4,000 years of Western civilization. And don't ever forget that. And that the reason you're there is to serve and protect. You know, I never liked a bully. And what I liked least of all was bully with a badge. Hmm. Uh, so this is what we started teaching these young people. And uh, I remember on the writing skills, I got a hold of a bunch of DVDs, the old Adam 12 TV series that NBC had back in the late 60s, early 70s, which was actually quite done quite well because uh, they based all their stories in LAPD, which was one of the premier law enforcement organizations in the nation at that time. And so I said, okay, we're gonna watch one of these 30 minute episodes of Adam 12. Don't worry about it, their talkies even got color. Uh, and uh, 
you're going to sit down and watch these 30 minute episodes and then you're going to write me a police report on what happened during that episode 500 words minimum each week people's writing screw uh, writing skills improved dramatically you know when you tell somebody to do something especially young people you just don't tell them to do it it's kind of like in the marine corps you don't tell your lance corporals or the people underneath you uh, whenever you're a platoon sergeant or, or section sergeant or squad leader or something you don't tell them what to do and sit on your duck you lead from the front uh you know the years that i taught all two years of them i never sent a single kid to school i mean to a principal's office i consider that a a uh, a smudge against my record to be able to control a situation nobody was ever sent to the principal's office but we did a lot of push-ups together <laughs> and uh you know it's real tough on your viewpoint of yourself when this old fellow's up there in a coat and tie that's old enough to be your grandfather and he's calling out the push-ups down up at his cadence and such and after about 10th push-up you're shaking like a wet dog's but eating ground glass and there's not even a bead of sweat in his head yet <laughs> that gets respect kids respect that sort of thing and uh that's one of the things that i recommend you lead from the front it's easy to say tell somebody you go to principal's office well, I'm going to kick you out of my class. I don't want you in your class. I don't want this. I don't want that. Mm -mm. You just got to show them you're more of a, you're, you're the alpha dog. <laughs> you're more dog than they'll ever be. Because a lot of these young people, and I got into this when I was doing the, uh, working on churches, uh, looking for youth pastors and such. Uh, a lot of these, especially young men, uh, a lot of these young men are coming from broken homes. Uh, and these broken homes, what they have for adult supervision is mostly from women, be it the mom, aunt, a grandmother, whatever, even an old sister. They don't have any men in their lives, not real men. Now, see, there's a big difference between being a man and being a male. Or as I like to say, and this may be a little crude, being a sperm donor. Sperm donor. There's a big, vast difference there, right? Right. And uh, we talked about that when you're looking for a youth pastor. I said, we need a young man, a man. We don't need a woman. They said, well, you're just kind of sexist. I'm not being sexist. Just look at what these kids are getting for influence right now. We have an entire two or three generations of, uh, 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 of males who don't know how to be a man. And uh, there's a flip side to that too, because a lot of these teenage girls, they needed a male influence also, a man's influence. Because if they don't get some kind of love from a, from a, a male role model, they'll go out in that street and look for it themselves in all the wrong places from the wrong people. Um, anyway. That's just some, I think, of what I saw going on there as far as school. Uh, 
I think it's a real mistake that we're not teaching American exceptionalism in, that, in the school system anymore. I try to do so as much as possible in my classes to explain to them. You know, when I started talking to them about the what we call introduction to criminal justice, we started with the Code of Hamar Rabbi and worked our way forward through the U.S. Constitution Bill of Rights. We talked about English common law. We talked about Roman law. We even talked about Jewish law, and uh, uh, we talked about uh, Islamic codes, and we talked about the Christian codes, Roman law. All of these helped shape our Western civilization. And as close as to any perfection that you can come to as far as an immortal plane, this nation is the product of those 4,000 years that we live in. There is American exceptionalism. First of all, we have an 18th century document that starts out, we the people. That's, you look back at what was going on in the 18th century, that's pretty, that was pretty exceptional in itself. And then we made it stick for a revolutionary war. Another war to prove a point, the same people, Great Britain in 1812. Uh, a war between the states or a civil war, which I don't even like using the term civil war, there's, there's nothing civil about it. Uh, all that we accomplished, we put a man on the moon, we uh, brought in uh, manufacturing methods and such, we had the greatest minds, uh, we developed the bomb. Uh, I don't care what can be done, it needs to be done, Americans can do it best. I've always believed that, I've always believed that. I think we're seeing it right now, this coronavirus scare. Look at what's being done in our country mobilized. Uh, we already have people coming up with possible uh, solutions uh, as far as vaccinations and such, or, or drugs to be given to these people uh, that are suffering like they are, and maybe, a chance, maybe in danger of dying or something. We did that, America did that. And we need to teach that in our schools. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, uh, with, with a lot of, like the, the fact that, I, I forget the number of, um, you know, years that it took for the SARS va vaccination or whatever, right? That that came out, but we're 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 moving so fast on this vaccination. A lot of that has to do, I think, with having somebody in charge that that knows. And it, it goes all the way back to your story about the military. If we reach back to that, somebody that that is uh, smart enough to know that we have the resources, we've just got to figure out who can do each job and allow them to do that job. You know, and and so he's allowing freedom to work at its best rate. We do best when we do things that way. Yeah. Heck, during World War II, all the big car manufacturers, there was a bunch more of them then than there, was, there is now, they just basically spun under the hill for manufacturing cars and tanks and planes and everything else in the world uh, to uh, win that war. You know, they talk about the cause and effect and what did this and what did that in World War II. What beat the Axis powers was that we were literally the arsenal of democracy. We buried them in Jeeps and M1 rifles and Liberty ships and Sherman tanks and P-51 Mustangs and B-17 bombers. We buried them. They couldn't shoot them down or shoot them up fast enough. Yeah. And that was that American exceptionalism. Uh, and these days, and of course, I, I have to admit, I've seen this coming a long time and probably got a built-in prejudice about it, but since 1982, when I was in West Africa, uh, dealing with the, uh, and I still call them Red Chinese, People's Republic of China, uh, 
I knew then that if things, sooner or later, if things didn't change, we were going to have to fight those people. Mm-hmm. We were going to have to fight. We'd already fought them in Korea. Yeah. In fact, the colonel that I was that I was basically with here for a short while in uh, Zaire, which is now being called the Congo Republic, I guess now again. Anyway, he had been a second lieutenant at the Chosen Reservoir, nineteen fifty something. Uh, in the Korean War. He had a great deal of respect for the American Marines. Anyway, from that point, I've seen this, these steps being made that you can't hardly pick up some of the same aid in China someplace on it. And the thing that's really bad about this is there's a lot of American companies out there that will do everything possible to hide that made in China label. They know what they're doing wrong, but they're doing it so they can make their almighty dollar. I'm one of those kind of guys, I don't want it made in China, I want it made it here. Heck, it's gotten so bad now, if I see it H.O. in Mexico, I feel like I won one for the home team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> but, uh, at least it's like this fire. This is not the first fire to come out of there. Mm-hmm. It won't be the last. And we keep having people, American politicians, who I think are connected too close to that almighty dollar, saying the Chinese are our allies and not our competitors and not our enemies, they're our allies. And I just kind of wonder what planet they beamed in from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's just not the end of it, what we're seeing now. Uh, this will continue. We need to bring America back to America. We need to. Uh, break some of these ties that we have let ourselves be ensnared in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not talking isolationist or anything like that, but I am saying America first. Yeah, there's a lot of people that, and, and I know we're, we're way off into the weeds on this discussion, which is fine, but there's a lot of people that that don't understand the difference between being isolationist and also, uh, you know, taking care of your, your country first. We have a lot of issues in this country we could deal with and, and even I often talk about this as our neighbor to the south, uh, you know, where you just said sometimes you feel like you score a victory if it's made in Mexico. But uh, Mexico's got enough issues that we ought to be, uh, if we're going to be dealing with helping anybody in the world, it should be the neighbor there to the south, you know, because a lot of good people there that would love to... Uh, you know, to be able to live in a, in a similar society to ours where there's real freedom and it's not being, um, you know, muzzled by the cartels and all the activity down there and everything. And, and a lot of our, our, a lot of people in our country, they're just using the drugs that are coming right up from Mexico and they're helping to perpetuate that problem. I, I you know, I, I said the other day on one of the social media deals that those people that, that recognize that problem down there, they're, they're worse than abolitionists in a, in a cotton shirt living in the North, you know, prior to the start of the, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Uh, it's just, it's, it's crazy to me how people don't see how much of the, the problem that we, we, we empower the, the Chinese government by allowing that much of our economy to come from there and look at how oppressive they've been to their people over the last century, right? So. Now, something I don't understand, you hear, People uh, defend the red Chinese and uh, or, or China, and I, just, I don't have anything against the Chinese people. I do have something big against the Chinese Communist Party. Right. Uh, and you see them. 
I remember that, and I forget who the NBA star said, well, when they had this big controversy about Hong Kong, well, they still understand the true issues over there. Don't talk me down to me that way. I understand what the true issues is. I've probably been more places that he that he can't find in a map, much less pronounce, uh, <laughs> up on the front line, so to speak, worldwide. Mm. We're buying products, toys, uh, gizmos from people who basically are slaves. That's why they can buy them so cheaply. That's why we can buy them so cheaply because the people are basically working slave labor. Right. Children are working slave labor. Right. And as far as Mexico, um, you're exactly right. We are the drug problem. If there wasn't demand on this side of the river, there wouldn't be a supply on the other side. Yep, that's correct. And and, uh, and when people start that mixing this and mixing that and mixing something else, it irritates me. Yeah, they, they have problems just like we do. Everybody else does. But their biggest problem was generated by us. And that's not the first time that that's happened in our history. I mean, the Benito Juarez once said, poor Mexico, so far away from God, so close to the United States. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty fair statement. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the, my writing in my books is going into that. Uh, uh, and how we, as an American government, like in the 1910s and 1920s, we didn't do Mexico any favors. We didn't. We didn't do many favors at all. It was a. It was a. It was a badly planned and executed uh, diplomacy down there. Sometimes armed diplomacy. And uh, we screwed up bad, and then we just walk away and let them kill each other, murder each other, almost genocidal type murder. Mm. And we should be learning something from that. Yep, it's been, uh, and I know we've been wrapped up in different things around the globe, you know, over that period of time, but to me, if uh, there's a fire at your neighbor's house, you ought to do something, you know, to get over there and help put out that fire, you know, and we, we've had our back turned to that issue for a very long time, and then many people are upset about the issue that so many people want to come here illegally and stuff, who could blame them? Who wouldn't want to escape what's going on over there? That again, I feel like we're we're as much responsible for, more responsible for than anybody, you know? But. Well, it's like in Central America, when I was there, I guess that was 82, Honduras and uh, Panama, Colombia, the northern part of Colombia, uh, some of those other countries in there. Uh, I go to, you know, Chiquita Banana Company ran Honduras during that time. And... Uh, They'd invite us to these enclaves, these compounds they had, and you have all the uh, uh, affinities, the modern affinities. Uh, 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 they're inside these compounds of swimming pools, air conditioning, people dressed just so-so. Uh, and then you look through all that wire and such, and you look out in that jungle, there's people there that are living like, they've been living for 300 years now. Yeah. And then somebody comes along and offers them a, Say, I'll put you a Chevrolet in every garage and a chicken in every potty. You'll take this AK-47 and fight for me. What do they got to lose? Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> We're all the worst enemies. I've seen it many, yeah. many times. Yeah. I've got I've to pause it real quick here. One second. 
All right, back here uh, with Ben English. Um, I don't know if you were going to add anything else about that uh, discussion we were just having, or if you wanted to go back to um, the the classroom and and some of that stuff. But uh, wherever you wherever you want me to go, I sure. But part of what I was talking about that's not what's being taught in schools. Right. Uh, you know, that's why it came up to begin with. Yeah. The idea of American exceptionalism, the idea that uh, that American can-do can overcome anything. That yes, we have problems, but when it gets down to it, the United States is the last great moral hope of this world. That's why so many people, you're talking about illegals, that's why so many people want to come here. You don't see anybody trying to leave, everybody's trying to get here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know anybody that's moved to to India or China in my life for a better economic uh, opportunity or anything along those lines. And and I've known very few that have moved to Mexico, um, but I've known a lot more that came from Mexico than in, have moved there. And there's a reason, you know, at the rate that you do. What what we have is what everybody else wants. That's one of the reasons why we are exceptional. You can't you can't not you cannot deny that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Nope. The, the things that are would you would call this normal operating procedure in these other countries, it's unheard of here. Our poorest people, supposedly poor people in this country, would be like well-to-do folks in other parts of the, of the world. Right. Yep. No question about it. And and it doesn't take much activity on Google to find that out. It, and a lot of that information is available today and and verifiable as well, uh, pretty easily. You know, um, and and if in some of the countries like India and China, you have to believe uh, places like that. And I say this about Mexico all the time. You know, um, the United States got Texas and, and California, of course, uh, through, you know, some of our uh, conflicts and purchases with Mexico uh, many years back there. But look at look at what uh, how much more productive those two areas are. If you really consider what Mexico has to offer, it has. Uh, everything pretty much that those two places have to offer but uh, an oppressive and uh, quick to turn over government uh, that they've had you know not really being committed to anything like we have been the Constitution um, for as long as we have I think it, it just it, it exacerbates a lot of their problems as well if you want to look at another area of where a lot of their issues come from that should be to me one of the most uh, productive and successful nations in the world and it's unfortunate that it's not Well, it's always been that way. I forget. I think it was 57 government changes in about 10 years to 1850s, 1860s in Mexico. You know, they kicked out Santa Ana a half a dozen times or better, and each time they brought him back, and that's the best they could get. Right. Yeah, I, I've told students in, in class that if you really want to see, I had such a, a great professor there at UTSA, Maria Carmen Reyes Hernandez Johnson, I think. She had a, a lot of names, um, but she was awesome. She taught me history of Mexico, and it was one of the most fascinating classes I ever took because you could totally see why they had not achieved uh, like they should achieve. It's, it's, it's a fascinating uh, um you know, subject to take it for anybody listening that's going to be signing up for courses next fall at the university level. Hopefully, you get someone that shoots you as straight as uh, Dr. Johnson did. What, um, you know, in your time in Ozona? Yeah, I've always... Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was going to say. In no, your, sir, you go ahead. Okay. In your time in Ozona, how many uh, different people that you got to work with with your criminal justice classes, how many of them uh, eventually have pursued a career in criminal justice? Do, have you, well, that's been some time ago, and, and I just received word the other day that one of my uh, young students I thought a great deal of, uh, but in the Marine Corps, did very well there, and now he had put in become a state trooper. Nice. And uh, that happened. I, I had encouraged them. I said, uh, if you want a good place to start out with, go into the military, but always remember the reason why you're really putting your name on that dotted line. It's not because of the education or worldly experience or anything like that. It's basically say that you either kill or be killed if it comes down to it. But several of the young people that I had did go into the military and have worked their way into the criminal justice system now. You've had a lot of uh, different ones that you said have gone into the military, and, and that, that was a great place for a lot of kids from Ozona, I feel like, to, to be able to get away from there. And uh, um, Maria and Saul and several of the kids that I worked with when I was there, I mean, they, they've been able to go out and see a lot of the world that they may never have otherwise, similar to what you got to do after you left Fort Stockton when you were younger and everything. and. Uh, I, I feel like having people like yourself in schools more and more in the state of Texas is something that we've got to uh, figure out how we do because to me, the, if you're getting kids ready for the real world, you, you need to have some injections of people that have been out in the real world as well, you know, and and I, I don't, I, obviously, you know, you've got to have the math and you've got to have the science and you've got to have all these different subjects that prepare them, for, you know, a lot of your students for that collegiate level stuff. But I think that, I, and I've certainly heard this, you know, uh, from many of the kids that I taught while I was there. And Mike Medina Jr. said the other day, he couldn't wait for this episode to come out. Uh, I heard a lot of good about the stuff that came out of your classroom. What caused it to uh, last only the few short years that it did? And if you don't want to go into that, you don't have to. But I just well, offered up. It was simply a case. When I worked, went to work for Mr. Webb and uh, Mr. Gott, it was on a handshake kind of business. There was no contract. I knew who they were. I knew they could take them at their word. And uh, they offered me really a dream opportunity. You know, I could set up my own syllabus. I treat what I thought was important, pretty much run my own show. That's the way I work best. Um, but we had a different administration come in and uh, for their own reasons, uh, they wanted me to work first of all full time. And I said, I'm not gonna work full time. My agreement was part time. Well, we wanted to talk to you about that. Uh, we'd like to come on part uh, full time. I said, no, I don't wanna come on full time. And they said, well, then it came up the deal of getting certified. And I said, what does that mean? And because I had not been certified, uh, Mr. Gott and Mr. Webb had said that with all my background and training and what I had done in college and such, that I pretty much was certified <laughs> by real world more than anything else. Right. And uh, anyway, they started talking about the certification process and asked how much it cost. And they told me, and I got to figure in my head, uh, it didn't come to the job as far as money, but by the time I figured the certification and such, I'd probably make more money down there putting burgers at the Dairy Queen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I said, I'm not interested. And 
they told me, they said, we really want you to reconsider this. I said, hey, I'll, so I'll think about it 30 days, 60 days, whatever. But I'm not doing this. I've already got my mind made up. It got up to the point they even tried to talk my wife, Kathy, into talk me into the going to get certified. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess it's just the way I was raised. When you make a deal with somebody a handshake, and somebody else comes along and breaks a deal, you walk away. And uh, it's pretty okay, Mike Medina. Uh, again, <laughs> I always enjoy him. Uh, his dad and his mom come to me later on and said if if you uh, if we could bring you back would you come back and I said no I said I always raised it if you once you quit an outfit it's always bad for him to go back and I don't have any hard feelings about anybody I don't have any hard feelings about what happened I think what they did was a mistake they got rid of that program they got rid of the uh, um nursing program which is really working well yeah uh, there were some other programs and it's they... like i tried to explain to the new superintendent at a time you're going up there telling all these people the parents the faculty the students themselves that when they graduate ozona high school they'll be ready for college i said everybody knows that's wrong that's a lie they're not going to be all ready for college they're going to have young people come in and go straight into the military going to work for the parents and their business, going to have a farmer ranch, going to work at the oil field. I see each one of those jobs is just as important as going to college and whatever happens afterwards. Now, I would imagine he felt that way because he'd gone to college. I went to college too, to be honest. And I told you what I had done before in college. Other than meeting my wife, I pretty much wasted that two and a half years. Hmm. Uh, the best thing that came out of it was meeting my future wife. Uh, and I was the first one in my family to go to college. But like I explained to him again, this new superintendent, if you keep telling this to these young people that you got to go to college, you got to go to college, these they won't go to college for one reason or another. They start thinking like second-class citizens, that the education field is not there for them. They're there for the people that are going to college. Nobody cares if they're going to the farm or the ranch or the oil field or the military or whatever. And uh, I think we were starting to learn, and I knew it for some time, that in many ways, college is a farce. Yep. Uh, I think we're looking around now, we're seeing master plumbers, master electricians, the average age around 60 years old. They're making a heck of a lot more money than a lot of these people who go to college, especially to get the degree in underwater basket weaving 101 or something. <laughs> and uh, because these guys that are plumbers and and electricians and mechanics, they're not afraid to get their hands dirty. We have generations of young people now that are afraid to get their hands dirty. You can't do the computer, they don't want to do it. Hmm. Well, you know, one thing, one thing, uh, not to cut you off, but to add to what you said about between the wanting kids to go to college, every kid to go to college, and the wanting you to have a certification uh, in all this process, a lot of that comes down to what uh, the school's reflection is on the state and federal reports and to me what a waste of worry or concern or you know those state reports they change you know the the they change all the time the federal reports they change you know 
quite often both of those organizations change what they're measuring for. So the thing that you really need to worry about in a school to me the most important measure, and it's not going to show up on the state or federal reports, is how many of these kids are you getting ready for real life? And I feel like that's exactly what you're saying there too. And it's a shame that sometimes I feel like administrators go through places and they're more worried about, well, when I apply for my next job, what, it, what kind of data am I gonna be able to show that says I made a significant difference there based on a bunch of state reports. But that does nothing for kids that are trying to become productive adults. Well, I, uh, I explained it to that principal. I said, you're setting these kids up and get them thinking they're second class citizens that the public education system is not geared towards them and that gets to be a self-fulfilling prophecy you don't ever have to say it they can put it together so they're not stupid and that i said if you really want to have some reasonable goals for your school system uh you need to teach the three r's and have them be masters of three r's reading writing arithmetic and then teach them what it means to be a contributing member to the American society. Said those are what doable goals are for public school system. And uh, again, I'm the oldest of three brothers, the oldest of five total. Uh, Got two younger sisters, two younger brothers. Um, I was the only one to go to college and I got all these, all this awards and such. It didn't make me any better, any smarter than what they were. None of them went to college. Right. And, and several made a lot more money I ever had. <laughs> yep, and at the end of the day, uh, money or awards won't make anybody any better than anybody else. I mean, your own level of personal happiness and whether or not you're fulfilling the purpose that exists for your life is the real measurement of whether or not you are uh, you're living the best life you can live. I mean, there's all kinds of different uh, successes, so... I, I hear you there a hundred percent. Well, that was my attitude for it. And we had differing philosophies. Like I said, he wanted me to get certified. He wanted me to work full time. Like I told him, I said, you know, look, I said, I've been working pretty much full time since I was 12 years old. I've got social security statements to prove that. And I'm tired of working full time. I'm going to work and work for myself. And I had actually gone into the teaching program and put my writing over to the side. That's what I was planning to do when I retired from the highway patrol, to sit down and start writing. Yeah. And then they came along with me with uh, this uh, uh, gig as far as being a school teacher. And there was another part of that too. You were talking about the people you had teaching in schools these days. I came from a different generation. When I went to high school, it doesn't matter what generation, our kids are gonna be kids. Kids are kids, I don't care if you're talking about the 1820s, 1920s or 2020s. Right. It's human nature. Anyway, we get we go start going to school. Most of our teachers at high school level were men, and a lot of these old boys, they'd been World War II, they'd been in Korea, they'd come up hard, Great Depression and such, and they didn't brook any nonsense. <laughs> uh, I had one teacher in particular, name was Dad Baker. He was my world history teacher in high school. He was the most influential teacher. And I had some really good ones. I can name them all. But he was the most influential teacher I had. He was the reason I graduated high school. He saw to it. Because I was too scared not to graduate high school the time he got through with me. <laughs> yeah. He had been in Darby's Rangers in World War II. 
until they got the clots cleaned by Herman Gerringson uh, Panzer Division in Sicily back in, I think it was 43. Then he went over to the United States Army Air Forces, had two B-17s shot out from underneath him. Second time around, he and the radio men were the only ones to survive out of a 10-man crew. He uh, dove off the Great Reef. He drove an ambulance. He was a football coach. Uh, he'd been a hunting guide. He was a man's man. Hmm. And he took a special interest in me. And he was the reason I graduated high school. My mom and dad had divorced. I wasn't scared of the cops or anything like that, but I was scared of that old man. And one time I started when I was, I think it was my senior year, I just started out. And I was working two jobs at once. I started, I needed a little vacation. So I decided to play hooky one day. My mom knew what I'd done. And she didn't call the police. She didn't call my dad because he was in middle at the time. She called Dad Baker. Somehow, Dad Baker... Got somebody to sub to him on a moment's bonus, and he came looking for me. And he found me. That's what was bad. He found me. Mm. And he and I had a come to Jesus moment. And he basically told me, don't you ever make me come looking for you again. And he didn't have to. Because I believe in that old man. And I look back and I owed him so much. I never had the proper thought, proper chance of thinking because he died unexpectedly of a massive heart attack after I graduated. He was the one that got me in the Marine Corps and, and got me thinking that way, military and such. He was a real influence on me. In fact, he went to my other friends at that time. He knew who my friends were. And he said, y'all keep an eye on being English. He's having some real problems right now. Keep him straight. And he had his first heart attack then when we were still in high school. And they were taking him to the ambulance, taking him to the hospital. And he was saying that as they were leaving him out of the classroom, telling the other students that were there. There's no way in the world I could ever properly thank that man for what he did. Even if I had the opportunity to try, I wouldn't be able to. But when they came to me with that offer, or that teaching job, I kind of smiled inside myself and said, if there's one way I can pay back what Dad Baker did for me, this might be it. This might be it. That's awesome. That is good stuff. Uh, and I, and I, I mean, again, you know, in the time that I was there, there was also a science teacher that had been really uh, well-liked. Can't remember his name. Uh, but you, you, the two of you were the teachers that a lot of those kids, and, and you know, you were both gone as well, but a lot of the coaches had changed over also. But even though you only stayed there a couple of years, I mean, you made a big impact on a lot of those kids. And I know the ones that took your class really appreciated you and, and the contribution you made in the classroom. I still hear from them. Uh, it honors me and it humbles me. Uh, it's like I told one of them not too long ago. Uh, Janet Thompson, she's done real well since she graduated high school, went on to college. Uh, and she heard that I had written these books and she wanted to copy the books and we were chatting, chatting on Facebook. And I reminded her again, I said, you know, whether y'all like it or not, once y'all stepped into my classroom, y'all will be one of mine from then on. And uh, that's pretty much the way I felt about it. Uh, it. It really 
offered me an opportunity. It's the best thing I could have possibly done. You know, when I came out of high school, went in the Marine Corps, that's the best thing I probably could have possibly done. And when I retired from the highway patrol, I went to teaching like that two years. That was probably the best choice I could have made that time of my life, looking back on it. Because I was able to accomplish so much in my own mind and get things done. You know, well, I won't mention his name. I don't want to embarrass anybody. I had a young man in there. I arrested a body in his family. I sent his brother up for eight years for intoxication manslaughter. When I started teaching there, every teacher that I talked to about him said that, well, he'd already failed once. They said he's a lost cause. He's a lost cause. And uh, he and I formed a relationship. And I wasn't easy, any easier on him, I wasn't anybody else. In fact, he ended up being one of my, what I call class officers. Getting, and he went up and failing everything to get A's and B's in all his classes. Because, see, each week we'd have our weekly uh, examination. And then when they were through, I'll find a little private area at the back of my classroom. And I pull them back in there individually just for a moment or so. What's happening with your sports? What's happening in other classes? I'd be talking to other teachers and say, okay, who's on the bubble here right now? Who's in the bubble in English? Who's in the bubble on science and such, mathematics? I tell them, I said, this is a fun class, guys and gals. You need to concentrate on your basics. You concentrate on your basics. That's you know, things like mathematics and English and, and your sciences and such. But uh, he starts making, I get information on him, he starts making A's and B's. And I guess it all came to me, you know, they come out with a special issue there, the local newspaper each year, the graduating class. He graduated the next year. And uh, they asked him what you learned about in high school, and they feel all this stuff. The favorite memories for high school for all that. I remember what he put it in his. He said, I learned that Mr. English wasn't such a bad guy after all. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, I remember also, I was talking about the problem with ethics and morality and the idea of honor and duty and integrity. And uh, I, the younger people, they respond well to audiovisual stuff. And uh, I said, all right, uh, I taught uh, what I call an ethics block. And I said, we're going to watch a movie at the end of this. And they said, well, what's the name of the movie? And I said, well, it's called, Rand it's called Ride to High Country with Joel McRae and Randolph Scott. Well, of course, I never heard of either one of those guys before. And I said, don't worry about it. I said, it's a color and it's even a talkie, all right? And, uh, well, I said, what's going to happen? You watch this movie. And you're going to pick out a character in that movie, and you're going to write me a, basically a term paper on the morality and ethics of that character and, and what stuck out with you about that character. And so I had to show the film two or three consecutive classes during the two or three consecutive days because hour and a half, hour, near two hour film. Mm -hmm. And I turn on the lights after the final reel and, and the, the credits are rolling, and I got these big old so-called self-proclaimed street toughs sitting there with tears running out of their eyes, and I knew I had them. <laughs> I knew I had them. And I had some of the most well-thought-out, caring, introspective, 
papers turn into me as all those term papers I've ever read from any group of young people. And then I knew I really had them because they got ready to have the senior party that year, senior night, but they all put them inside the building and keep them there till the next morning. And several of my uh, young people from my classes came together and said, Mr. English, could we borrow a ride to high country? Because we've been telling the other kids that are not in your class about this movie that they really need to see it. So that was one of the activities that night. Did, did you ever see the movie Running Brave? Running Brave? No, sir, I don't think so. Okay, it's about Billy Mills, the, uh, the former Marine uh, that we brought there to Ozona High School when I was there. Uh, thanks to the Booster Club and, and portions of the cross-country budget and everything else that we put together to do that uh, out there in Ozona. But he won the 1964 uh, Olympic gold medal in the 10K at Tokyo. And uh, yeah. that movie is probably, I think it's 1980 or 1983. For some reason, those numbers are sticking out to me. And I showed that movie in class every year when we talked about assimilation, you know, and, and things of that nature. And the kids at the beginning, I know exactly how you're feeling here because at first it's like, oh my, what is this movie, this old movie we're watching? Oh, I mean, I don't have that movie anymore because I lent it to a former student uh, at Rock Springs that still has it. Uh, but it's, you know, um, that's that's one of the neat things when in education, too, when you show kids that there's been really, you know, there's just because something looks old doesn't mean it's not still useful, Right. I think that's what my young people picked up. In fact, they had me start recommending movies for them to, to watch in. <laughs> and uh, I'm a big, I'm an old movie buff. I could probably care less most anything new. Mm. But uh, the old stuff, I know a little bit about it. And uh, in fact, uh, that uh, that same year for the guys and gals that uh, didn't have to take their final exams that they'd done well enough, we, we ran an old film called Bite the Bullet. And uh, just for the same reason, yeah. the old western. Yeah. That's, oh well, and it, it didn't come up for me here on my on my Google when I was just looking to see what it looked like. I I looked at the other one just a second ago, um, and so now I'm just checking this one out. That's got uh, Gene Hackman in it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's got an all-star cast in it too. Yeah. No it was kidding. made in '76. It was made when I was in high school. But uh, Ride to High Country, I, that was a Sam Peck and Paul film. In fact, I think it was the second film that he did. And in my opinion, by far the best. Mm. Yeah, everybody that's in that movie it turned out to be somebody. Of course, Joel McRae, Randolph Scott, men like that, actors like that, they were already somebody. But there was everybody else in that thing that does any kind of part at all. You say, I've seen that guy before for like a million dollars different movies. <laughs> yeah. And TV shows. Yeah. Well, uh, now, you know, you and, uh, and Miss English, you and Kathy have left Ozona and everything, and you're living out in Alpine, right? Yes, sir. And uh, if you'd like to tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing, because I know uh, for people that think, has this guy ever slowed down in his life? You're going to be disappointed if you're expecting him to say yes, because... Uh, of course, I, I, as I've kept up with you and everything from the um, the Big Ben Board of Directors to being a published author, I know you haven't slowed down a bit. So, and I'm going to let you elaborate on some of those things you're doing now. Well, uh, we moved here about five years ago now. I started moving here. It's one of those world's longest moves. We bring everything with 30 years no zone out here, and. Uh, 
we were blessed to find a really nice place here in Alpine, enough room for me to tinker mow cars. I still do that. I still work with guns I, uh, and build them and, and, and work with them. I still train hard for an old man uh, physically. Um, I still, at 61 years old, can put on a 35-pound pack and brush, brush for 15 miles each day in 100-degree heat. Um, but I'd always wanted to ride and there was a successful writer that had done, I think he'd been published like 24 times, 24 books. His name is Bill Wright. Bill was doing a, he was doing a book about my great, great aunt, Mag Smith. She was blood English. It was, she kind of a, a legend of Lord Big Man. Died in 1965. Anyway, he was interviewing, trying to get stories on her and some background information. Everybody said, talk, kept saying, talk to Ben. He remembers her and he knows some of the stories. So he comes to talk to him. We have a good time. And we're sitting there discussing back and forth. And Kathy jumps up and says, well, Ben does a little writing too. I'm kind of like, and, and I had been, I would write these little stories about coming out of the big Ben when I go down on these trips or just memories and such. I'd send them out email people I knew, just pastime. And, uh, of course, he says, being a gentleman that he is, well, send me a little something what you wrote. And I said, all right. So whenever I got a chance the next couple of days, I send him the latest little email that I sent out to other people. And he comes back to me. He says, you deserve to be published. How can I make that happen? I said, what do you want? <laughs> and he says, I want a story. And he goes, I want a book of short stories about growing up in the Big Ben and going back time after time. It's kind of like what you wrote. I said, okay. So I sat down and I, ba I banged it out. And by the time I was finished, he was uh, going through some very difficult times with his wife. She was very ill at that time. And uh, Bill put me in contact with another successful writer by the name of Marsha Dalston. And uh, I sent my manuscript to Marsha and uh, she come back to me. She goes, don't send this to anybody else. Just take this, send it to TCU Press. I've got a contact there. See what they say. And so I did. And she told me that they made some very nice things to say. She said that uh, a good writer, like a redhead, like a redhead, they stand out in the crowd. She goes, and you stand out in the crowd as, a, as an excellent writer. So I sent it to TCU Press. They accepted it immediately. That's my first time ever tried to, to, to be published. And they said, that doesn't happen to be accepted by university press like that your first time out. That just doesn't. She kind of got on me after a while. She said, you don't understand. This is this this is a big deal. People don't get accepted by university press in the first go like you did. I know, no. And uh, she goes, in fact, she'd tell me, she goes, you need to get more excited. <laughs> I said, about what? Because I can string some sentences together or something. And she goes, you don't realize how many people never even reach the point that you're already at in your first go. Anyway, TCU Press took it. I had some just really outstanding reviews. I still get them. Uh, and even like two and a half years later after it came out, it still sells by as well as it did when it came, first started being published. In fact, there's people that use the word classic for it. Uh, one man who recently passed away was a, Smith, a retired Smithsonian curator at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., moved out here, and he compared it to Goodbye to a River. And 
I was honored, which Goodbye to River was also written by another Marine after World War II, and that was about going down the Brazos before they would put all the dams in. For, it was his way to get out of what he'd been involved in the Pacific campaign. For for our anyway, for our listeners that are for, in, for our listeners that are interested in getting your book, can you tell them what the name of it is and what's the best way to get it? Uh, yes, it's the name of the book is Yonderings. It's through TCU Press, and uh, the best way to get a hold of it. If you're anywhere in the West Texas region, you should be able to walk into a bookstore and just find it there. Or you can go to Front Street Books here in Alpine and get an autographed copy mailed to you. Or you can get it through Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target, whatever. Uh, I prefer to use little independent bookstores because they're my home team. Mm -hmm. And, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, that's I'll, everybody's choice. I'll also attach information under the little profile deal that I have for you on my website that uh, allows our listeners as well to be able to easily find the, the book or, or uh, more information in that realm. But I just wanted to make sure we did hit on that. And uh, after that, I said, well, let's just try a novel. So I wrote my first historical novel called Destiny's Way, again about the Big Ben, the lower Big Ben, circa 1980, when uh, the Wax business was transforming itself into a marijuana smuggling business. And uh, I would like to say just about every rock, ruin, trail, arroyo, rise, or any other kind of landmark through there is actually there. Uh, I wrote about, now, Lula Moore once said, they asked him, what does it take to be a successful writer? His answer was short. He said, write what you know. And that's what I try to do. And Destiny's Way is doing really, really well. I sent it off and uh, to a publisher and they came back with a multi-book long-term book contract because destiny's way is actually planned to be only a one of about a 12 volume historical novel series about the same family uh it came out and uh and again my, my world changed again uh, i have people already saying they're reading it twice they read it twice now it was so good and the main thing in this kind of a gig is to get the word out and uh it's slowly getting out but i have some i, I can crank out some good stuff yeah and uh i've had people tell me well you should have been writing decades ago i said no i shouldn't have i had to live it first yeah you right. have to live it first you know i've been told that my fight scenes and my uh, action scenes and such are uh as realistic as anybody's ever read in by any author easy i've been there i've been there and if uh, people are interested they can go to my facebook page or i have a uh, web page on the internet at benhenglish.com mm -hmm. yeah and i'll i'll again link that to the profile there on the bottom uh you know on the web page there so that's that's awesome that's outstanding i can uh um, i'm gonna have to check out some of these books myself and um, give them a read and report back later on those. Well, I, I would appreciate it. I'd like to know what you thought. And uh, on my future projects, I have uh, shared a book out by the end of this year. It's called Out There Essays of the Lower Big Ben. It's kind of like uh, my first book, uh, Yonderings, but I took all the comments that I had about Yonderings to make a, uh, a better widget, so to speak. 
Um, the two main complaints was that, you know, you photographs where I'm putting in color photographs this time. Uh, and uh, they said no maps. So I hand drawn by 16 maps of that lower country uh, uh, to help show where I'm talking about. It's like when I wrote Destiny's Way, the, it takes place on the old branch that we used to have. And uh, one of my uh, compadres is actually CEO for Big Ben Natural History Association, read the advanced copy. He goes, man, I got to get out with you. He goes, I've got, I own a place for the last 30 years, five miles away from that ranch house. And I don't know where half these places are that you're talking about. And anyway, I've got that, the third one coming out, hopefully end of the year. Uh, I think people really, it's basically you have a color photograph uh, that uh, has a 600 word essay to go along with the photograph. There's 18 chapters divided up into different geographical areas of Lower Big Bend and they, these hand-drawn maps. See, there's a hand-drawn map that starts out each chapter, so they'll know what I'm talking about. And uh, I'm also my second draft now, my second historical novel, which is part of the same series as the first one. It's called Winter Eagles. I think everybody's going to really enjoy that one. Uh, I have been told by my advanced readers that you walk away from a powder burn. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm after I get uh, Winter Eagles finishing out there, then I'll turn to uh, Black and White, the one I've mentioned before. But uh, I like these, uh, this historical novel series, I basically got all the uh, uh, storylines sketched out. They're already sketched out. In fact, uh, they go all the way from the Battle of Hattin, Horns of Hattin, which is uh, during the Crusades in the Middle East, and they go all the way to 2020. Right now, the people keep saying, well, we want a sequel of uh, Destiny's Way with some of the same characters. I said, okay, I can do that. I was gonna move into the year 2020 and I'm gonna incorporate everything that's happening right now, the coronavirus scare and people kind of panicking. And then it's gonna be in the lower big bend. And with all, we've had a big amount, a large amount of people show up there. And we've had record number of people in the park and you take all this and with the drug problems and stuff coming out of Mexico and the cartels and these Mormon American citizens and women and children were murdered here along the border. That's just part of the small, the small part of what's happening there in Mexico. Throw all this together and you have a serial killer working the lower big in the national park and put this all together in the year 2020. Hmm. So, uh, like I said, I've always got ideas. I just need to have the time to sit down and write about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I uh, I sure appreciate you taking the time to visit with me, and and uh, hope you'll tell Kathy hello for me. Do you have anything else that you want to add to any of this? Yes, uh, a couple of things. One of this, I want to thank you for having me and doing this uh, interview. Uh, and I also want to thank my readers because they're the ones that bring me to the party. Uh, any of my readers are listening to this. Uh, I appreciate you. If it wasn't for you, uh, there'd be no reason to write these books. And I've been told I have a rabid following. In fact, the publisher ended up having me sign that contract with him. Said one of the reasons he wanted me because I have such a rabid following of Florida readers. And I know rabid is the correct word, but I do know who brought me to the party. And I really appreciate their encouragement and support. There have been a lot of people behind me. And along the same lines, I want to thank everybody, and include you, that have been a part of my life at one time or another. 
because what I write about, like I said before, Lula Moore said, write what you know. Well, what I know is my life experiences. And we talked about college and things like that. I didn't have any real life experiences in college. The ones I treasure is, are the ones that I made uh, as, a, as a little boy in the back of a horse, learning from older people what's important in this world, from the men I stood with in the, the Marine Corps and the Highway Patrol, uh, people I met when I was teaching, the young people I met that was teaching. Every one of them had some kind of influence on who I became and who I am now. And I thank each and every one of them because, to be honest, I have a great many blessings in my life. And the greatest blessing possibly is the people that God has led me to during this life, the people that I can call friends, the people I can say, I knew that person, I knew that woman, I knew that man. I knew him as a child, I knew him as a young person, I knew him as an older person. It was all a blessing. You know, they say that you, the, the often enough, the destination is the important thing. It's how you go along the journey. And I, in, this, in, in this sort of way, that pans out. The people you meet along the journey. Well, I, I sure appreciate that. And I think everybody that listens to it will. And I'll tell you, too, I think that uh, Dad Baker would be very... Uh, very proud of what you've turned out to be, and I think you 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 helped remind a lot of educators just how important it is to you know make those efforts to to help kids stay on the right path because you never know when they leave your doors when they pick up their diploma from the vault there with the principal like uh, like you did where they may take that diploma next and you've taken yours on a life of service whether it be with the marines the dps in the public schools and now writing the book as you said for your readers and and so your whole life has been uh, one of service to others and I think that there's a lot of value in that you can see that you're a man with purpose uh, behind you that pushes you full steam ahead a lot of value in that well thank you I uh, uh, it's been a ride let's put it that way and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world uh, I look at myself I'm 61 years old and I'm going like I'm just feel like I'm catching another gear now. Of course, Kathy's like, when are you ever going to grow up? <laughs> <laughs> I keep joking about it. I don't know why, you know, I still got to decide what I'm going to be when I grow up. Yeah. Well, growing up's overrated, you know. Uh, what do you get after growing up? <laughs> well, I, I think about my grandmother. You know, uh, she's the one who taught me how to spin a top, how to poach deer. Uh, how to uh, play marbles. Uh, she's the best shortstop ever had in a game of baseball. And people would say, she's never going to grow up. That was not being fair to her. It's just that she never learned to grow old. Yeah. And something else I would put up to my young people, any young person listening to this, and anybody for, uh, for that reason, you only get one life, make the most of it. Uh, I went to high school with some people that were looking for a day, a place to die the day they graduated high school. Their life has just been kind of looking for a soft place to die someplace. Life not made that way. It's not supposed to be that way. Uh, and it's one of the saddest things I hear is when people start reminiscing about the high school days, that, that was the best days they ever had. I was kind of scratching my head and I feel bad for them. Yeah. Yep. I feel bad. That was their glory days back in high school. Yeah, I, I agree. 
that I was uh, when I was sitting on the school board in Bernie there was a student um, a few years I guess it was probably my last um, my last graduation I was on the board for and he gave a speech and and I never forgot you know some of the things that he said one of the things he said is is that a lot of people tell you these are some of the best years of your life and he said something like God I hope not <laughs> and and you know that they're good years but I mean every year you should try to make a good year you know and and you inevitably have your bad ones but if if you look back and all you could think uh that were the good ones was high school i think that i think that one of the reasons that does happen for some people is is that when you're in in high school one thing or high school junior high elementary school one of the things you really take for granted is a lot more people care about you than maybe you'll ever find in the real world as you go out there you know because life uh you know as adults People aren't always looking for ways to help you. A lot of people are reluctant because of the bad that exists out there in the world. But in the school, that's kind of a safe place, and the people are paid to care about you, and so they do. And so I think that, that, that that's one thing that maybe some people have a hard time wrapping their brain around about why those times are so good. It feels good to be cared about by a lot of people. I think that could be very, very true and unfortunate. That's, it, unfortunately, that's probably that way for a lot of people you know we, we have such problems in our society now and uh, i can get off on that uh i told you before about no male manly influence true man influence and a lot of that comes lack of dad even the dad's at home he's out there living his third or fourth childhood on a motorcycle or something or doing this or doing that or doing something else kids they need to be a part of something that's why gangs have always been so appealing to young people that feel like they're a part of something fun. Yep. Yeah. No question. Well, and I've been to part of the two greatest gangs in the history of America, United States Marine Corps and the Texas Highway Patrol. <laughs> those are those are a good couple of gangs, huh? <laughs> yes, sir, they are. Well, Ben, thanks so much. Uh, if you have nothing else to to wrap up, um, you know, here on this episode, I'll go ahead and uh, stop recording. But I sure appreciate you being on. Thank you, sir. And I uh, look forward to visiting with you again. And uh, if you need to, me to talk about something else or clarify something, just make contact with me. You bet. If you find yourself enjoying this episode of the Tail Lights Podcast, please take the opportunity to rate us five stars and write a review if you can.